0: Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Because 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women in the US the right to vote, we've started a new series called The Women in Charge. Throughout the year, we'll be doing live Q&As with California women who are doing groundbreaking things in policy, politics, and government matters, both here in the Golden State and around the nation. To start off this series, we're talking with Christine Pelosi, a big player in the California Democratic Party, whose mother is the most powerful woman in US politics. Nancy Pelosi, former homemaker and mother of five turned congresswoman from San Francisco, broke ground by becoming the first female speaker of the House of Representatives. She's also famous these days for appearing with President Donald Trump in photos and videos that have gone viral. There's the fire red coat moment, the clap back moment, and most recently, the speech ripper moment. Christine says growing up in the orbit of her mom has been a daily lesson in persistence, focus, determination, and stamina. So she wrote a book about how Nancy Pelosi gets stuff done and how women in business and politics can claim their own seat at the table. Join us for a conversation with Christine about her mom's rise to political powerhouse, her role in current events, and the Pelosi advice on politics, family, and friendship.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson, the executive director. And tonight is a very special event. It is the first of our groundbreakers uh, Q and A series, which we're calling the Women in Charge. And this year, as many of you know, marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote in the U.S. So the goal throughout the year is to host live Q and A's with California women who are doing groundbreaking things in policy and politics, both here in the Golden State and around the nation. So to start off our Women in Charge series, we're talking with someone who has seen up close and since childhood a lot of groundbreaking in california politics and in washington dc as well christine pelosi has served as a prosecutor in san francisco she has been a special counsel in the clinton gore administration and chief of staff on capitol hill she is former she is a former executive director of the california democratic party she led its platform committee for 13 years and she has been elected elected six times to the Democratic National Committee, where she co-founded the DNC Veterans and Military Families Council. She wrote the book Campaign Boot Camp, Basic Training for Future Leaders, and then the second edition, 2.0, She's co-founder of the We Said Enough campaign, which focuses on uncovering and getting rid of a culture of sexual abuse and harassment in California's capital. And currently, she is chair of the California Democratic Party Women's Caucus. So she knows her way around at the Capitol and Congress. Now, the last name Pelosi may sound familiar to you because Christine is, I believe, the second oldest of Nancy Pelosi's five children. And her latest book, Christine's latest book, is about her mom. It's called The Nancy Pelosi Way, Advice on Success, Leadership, and Politics from America's Most Powerful Woman. Now, America's Most Powerful Woman gets a lot of attention, both good and bad, as I personally saw when we posted info of this event online and started seeing some pretty offensive memes and commentary coming in. So it's obvious that Nancy Pelosi has big fans, big haters, but whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, something else, or on the fence politically, you have to admit that for someone who was a homemaker and mother of five to rise to become Speaker of the House twice, it takes some savvy skills in management, leadership, building alliances, turning adversaries into allies, and as we'll talk a little more, weaving and whipping, quote unquote, in Congress. That's a, that's a term that Christine goes into detail in her book. So based on all the activity happening since the last presidential election in 2016, and the iconic role and photos her mom has taken a part in during that time, Christine thought it was a good time to relay how Nancy Pelosi gets stuff done, and how women in business, politics, any industry, in any sector, can learn from Nancy's smarts and skills to claim their own seat at the table. So that's what we'll be focusing on for the next hour or so with me asking questions Christine followed by audience questions at the mic for Christine. Before we kick into the Q&A, I want to give a sp- few special thanks to people who helped make this event possible. First off, we are having this event in a lovely space in Midtown Sacramento called Antiquity Midtown. So I want to give thanks to the hosts, Sharon Wilson and Marcy Hose for hosting us. Thank you very much. Thank you for your continued support. Also, to Capital Books, there are book partners. They're going to be selling books. Uh, Christine's book here tonight. So Ross and Heidi Rojek for providing the books. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to our volunteer extraordinaires who always help out the events, Rodrigo Ramirez, who's at the bar over there. Nicole Grant Krieg, who's been checking people at the bar, uh, not the bar, <laughs> at the table. Thank you both again for your continued support as well. And also to our audio team, Caleb uh, Clark and Nate Graham from Kickstart Audio, who are going to make us all sound wonderful tonight. Of course, to our panelists, Christine Pelosi, for coming, her team at Skyhorse Publishing for helping us put together the event. And last but not least, to you, the audience, for taking time out of your busy schedule. So I, I guess I've already introduced you, Christine, but I wanted to start with a, the first question going back to your first memory of your mom in political mode. Uh, Because it sounds like as soon as you were old enough to be in a stroller, you were involved in in the political scene. And so I guess I wanted to ask, your first memory of watching your mom in political mode and seeing her start at the ladder of an amazing political career, what sticks out for you?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And of course, I'm excited to be here with my We Said Enough co-founder, Alicia Lewis. Who is here um, who took a very big brave groundbreaking risk herself and uh, that's what we're about here which is stepping out into the unknown into a future that we can imagine um, but it takes the steps with our neighbors for our values uh, to convince other people to get there so when i first was writing campaign boot camp Basic Training for Future Leaders. It was right after my mom had won uh, the race for Speaker of the House, and we had just won in a very, very, very competitive, gerrymandered uh, year against a very popular president and a very unpopular war. Uh, so I was putting my information together and thinking back to my time in the stroller uh, in New York City where Nancy and Paul Pelosi had met, at Georgetown and fell in love, got married in her hometown of Baltimore, moved up to New York City where they had four children and then moved out to San Francisco and had my sister Alexandra for a total of five kids born within six years and one week. So at that point there were three of us in the stroller and my first, I was thinking about my first political memory was... 1968, and my mom had, looking up from the stroller nestled between two of my sisters, a women's caucus from an early age. (laughs) This is after my sister had already pushed me out of the stroller the year before, but we won't get into that now. It's why I'm for the underdog. Uh, And so, but I remember looking up and seeing my mom, and she had a scarf on with all the H's on it for Hubert H. Humphrey. Perhaps some of you or your moms or grandmoms had those scarves and so I looked up and I remember that and so when I'm writing in the book and I said mom you know now that I think about it we were in New York City how did you get past all those no solicitation signs and she said I was a mom with three babies in a stroller who was going to stop me (laughs) and when you think about it that was her first big political breakthrough moment which is I'm just going to walk through it says no solicitation I'm a mom three babies a stroller a mission here I go and she just did it and so I think that sort of organic politics was something that um, we saw a lot of in 2017 and 2018 there were a lot of people who went from kitchen to Congress like my mom did so I think she really related to this amazing freshman class um, because like her they just decided that they were on a mission and nothing was going to
1: stop them that's great so Flash, well, I guess speed forwarding ahead to, I guess a week ago tonight, right? State of the Union speech and what happened afterwards. I'm sure Christy gets this asked a lot, but obviously, you know, when you're watching the State of the Union, you see the, uh, the two people behind uh, the president, the uh, vice president and the speaker of the house. And obviously, someone who knows the speaker so well in body language has a good sense of what she's thinking during that time. Then there was the ripping up the speech. So I was just wondering, like, what were your thoughts when you were watching the speech, watching your mom um, behind uh president trump and then at the very end her reaction to that you know what uh what i guess what's your what's your thoughts on why she did what she did and what she was thinking
2: well a couple of things one when you talk about the state of the union usually that's a time for the president to bring the country together i um as was mentioned was a special counsel at Uh, in the Clinton-Gore administration, I was sitting in the chamber for the State of the Union Address while in the middle of Bill Clinton's impeachment when he came and he talked and he gave a speech about unity, about reaching out to the very Republicans who were in the middle of impeaching him. But the point was, he knew that the country had to come together. And as President Clinton famously said at the time, we're going to focus like a laser beam on the economy. So we're going to find a way to lift lift up people and work together, even though um, there were opposites in government and obviously they were impeaching him over a personally very embarrassing um, thing that he had done. This particular occupant of the White House did not have the same compunction towards national unity. When he talked about, you know, somebody having stage four cancer and a very you know, sad cancer diagnosis for the greatest fighter you ever meet, I thought he was talking about John Lewis. I was getting ready for the applause for civil rights icon John Lewis but instead he talked about a race-baiting, misogynist, anti-gay, vicious radio host who had used his platform for years and years and years to criticize everybody from uh, activists whose names we don't even know that he would lift up and and send his followers after, of course, to attacking the Speaker of the House. So that was an interesting choice. Um, He talked over and over and over in the speech about how he was going to protect people's health care. And we're like, wait, you're suing to overturn the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and not replace it with anything because the last replacement you had, the late John McCain gave a thumbs down to on the floor of the Senate, something I talk about in the book. And your budget, for years and years and years has decimated Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security disability benefits, and uh, you just have been suing to get rid of the public charge as we knew it and say to immigrants coming in that if you were going to have to require any sort of public assistance that you couldn't come into this country, something his own father, couldn't have passed as as an immigration test a generation ago. So this manifesto of mistruths kept going on, and towards the end of the speech, um, when it was over, uh, the speaker simply spoke very eloquently without saying a word by ripping the speech in half. And what was interesting about that was two things. One, it reminded me, actually, of my grandmother, Nancy D'Alessandro, Uh, You can't really understand the story of Nancy Pelosi without understanding her mother, Nancy D'Alessandro, an immigrant herself from Italy who uh, came over and lived in Little Italy, Baltimore. Uh, She... uh, was at 245 Albemarle Street then got married and moved to 235 Albemarle Street the in-laws were across the street at 308 Albemarle Street uh, she had actually matriculated at University of Maryland um, law school but had to leave when um, her baby died of pneumonia and um, and, and never uh, went back in fact when I passed the California bar and I sent her A Copy of my invitation from the bar examiners to go to the swearing-in She wrote me back and said that she was the second happiest person to receive this invitation and how proud she was To see me accomplish what she could not 55 years before So in the back of her mind she had always been an attorney in the back of her mind She had always uh felt ahead of her time and held back by her times and it made me very conscious of a young attorney of the shoulders i was standing on and the dreams that i was carrying and so much of what we talk about as groundbreakers are really breaking ground on behalf of people who dream that dream for themselves and then dream that dream through us and the responsibility we have to carry that forward not just for ourselves But to them, so I was thinking of my grandmother because when I was in college, I went over to my grandparents' house in Baltimore. I was at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and there was a guest there who was really rude to my grandfather. And, uh, I mean, he was in his dotage at that point. He's telling old stories. Why are you fighting with this guy? But they were really rude. So my grandmother just sort of got up, shuffled over to that person's seat and picked up their plate and walked it into the kitchen. We heard a little sound. She came back, sat down at the table. Then later we were getting ready to serve dessert and went into the kitchen and realized that she had thrown that person's plate away after splitting it in two. So I thought this is like a complete grandma move, right? This is the Italian grandma move, like we're not eating off of these plates again. And um, so that's what I thought of when I saw um, the speech being ripped in two. And the interesting part was that he was so triggered in such a snowflakey way by what happened that all he's done ever since is talk about it instead of the substance of his speech. Of course, when you saw the budget and you realized that he really was lying, you can tell why he's talking about a ripped-up speech instead of the broken promises and the ripped-up promises that he made to the American people.
1: So going uh, back to the motherhood, because I think that was a, a, the, one of the chapters that stuck with me, the personal uh, experiences of, you know, pigtails and uh, the stroller. Uh, when I read that, it sounded like um, Nancy Pelosi handling five children, getting them off to school, making sure they you know, uh, were well-behaved and took their baths and got their homework done. Sounds a lot like managing members of Congress. And so it sounded to me like motherhood is, can often be a very good uh, training ground for being a politician and excelling in it. So I was wondering, you know, your take. If, if, on your take on um, your mom's being a mom, how that translated to being a great politician and leading to Speaker of the House, and a few examples of you know, showing that in action. Well, a couple of things. First of all,
2: for our house, every day started the night before because after we had come home from school, taken off our Catholic school uniforms, done our homework, and then got to go out and play, we would have dinner and then clean up the dishes and set the table for breakfast the next day. So then we'd go upstairs. She'd make sure our our uniforms were pressed and our homework was done and we were bathed and ready for bed. In the morning, we'd wake up and we'd have, you know, five sets of cereal or whatever it was for breakfast. And then she'd set up an assembly line for us to make our own lunches. She would line the four girls up and give us really, 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 really tight braids. My dad would sometimes try to help and he, you know, dads and braids, like it was, it was cute. But by the time we got to the bus stop, it was, you know, like, The braid was falling out. We made a ponytail. But my mom was really tough on the braid, (laughs) pulling that hair really tight. Um, So that was every day. And if you were to say to a mom, and, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, parents in the audience. If you were to say, okay, um, welcome to parenthood. You're going to change a 1,000 diapers a year, minimum right? Probably more like 1500. And then that's going to happen for every kid that you have. And by the way, if you have five kids and school is say 300 days a year, that is X number of meals that you have to make a year. If you were to tell somebody at the outset, they would just be like, lose their minds, right? So you think of all the laundry you have to do and all the shopping and all the cleaning and all the everything. But you just have to put one good day in front of the next. You can't think of it as I'm going to go change 2,000 diapers this year. You have to think about it in terms of every week, what do I need in terms of diapers? What What are the needs that I have? How can I get them done? So as my mom always said, proper preparation prevents poor performance. And so... As far as she was concerned, the organizing work that she did as our mom uh, made her well-suited to organizing politics. When she was um, the northern chair of the California Democratic Party um, and then the state chair of the party uh, in the 70s, there was the VIP program, the Volunteers in Politics. So if you gave a couple of dollars a month, you got a newsletter zip-sorted in our living room, by the five of us in the days before bulk mail uh, campaign rates, and um, you 'd get to go to a party once a month um, with someone like Cesar Chavez or Phil Burton, um, Alan Cranston came over he would jog with us and give us buttons that said, "I ran with Senator Cranston." <laughs> Governor Brown jogged alone, but he came over to the house and uh, he would you know he would you know go upstairs and shower afterwards and come down for fundraisers, which we thought was pretty cool until. Uh, Marianne remembers this until, um, one day he came down and he said, what's the name of your cat? Well, we had had a cat living upstairs and my parents didn't know. And after he asked, we didn't. So we were like, thanks a lot, governor. Um, but it was a lot of organizing. It was a lot of grassroots. And when my mom first ran for Congress, her biggest calling card and the volunteers were people that grew up with us. And so they would say, well, you know, I, she drove my kids carpool. She was the class mom. She, you know, she brought cupcakes for all the kids. She was, um, you know, hand sewing, uh, Halloween costumes. So people knew her as a mom and people trusted her with their children, which, you know, when I became a parent, I realized what really a sacred thing it is to trust somebody else with your child. And so those elements make you an organizer, a quartermaster, a diplomat, she would always say when one person would get in trouble and somebody else would feel the pangs of justice coming on, you know, wanting to kind of pile on, and she would say, don't be a mismake, matters worse, right? She didn't trade in gossip. So, you could get in more trouble for getting somebody in trouble than they did for being in trouble in the first place. So, it was always a good idea to remember to be responsible for your own self. And also, she and my dad really tried to keep the five of us distinct, they dressed us all alike so they could find us, but they also kept us as distinct personalities and treated us differently because they knew that they were treating us with equity, which is to say fairly, but not the same because people need different things. And all of those skills made her very well-equipped Um, to succeed in politics, the Nancy Pelosi way. And she always says that as Speaker of the House or as leader of the party, you are a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a confidant, you are a psychiatrist, you're a family planner, you're a vacation planner, you're a wedding organizer, as we were just talking with Congresswoman Messui's staff, you know, all of these things that you do and you have to keep a lot of secrets. Because when it comes to whipping votes, And we'll get into that. If you tell everybody how you got somebody's vote, if you're just revealing everybody's secrets or desires just sort of out there publicly, and you all see this in the corridors of Sacramento, right? People can't wait to go down to the bars and talk about how they got this person to vote in a certain way. Well, then it never works again. Then you've burned their trust. So I think the elements of being what I consider to be a good mom, being organized, being compassionate, being a good listener, never um, reminding you constantly of your failings, remembering your mistakes and holding them out for later, but not constantly giving you a rundown of them, letting each day be a new day and teaching you to get along with your siblings. And remember, if you tell on your siblings, your siblings are going to tell on you. And if you're disloyal to your family, the people who care about you the most, then you're really losing the opportunity to, um, to, to live in community with people who really care about you or are gonna love you no matter what. So I always hear my mom say that motherhood is the gold star. Put it on every resume. And for all the women and all the parents that are either looking at running for office or looking at supporting candidates for office, think about how they talk about their relationships. A lot of times women don't talk about their relationships because they're afraid they're gonna get fired. Right, Because we still, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, make 77% of the healthcare choices for our families. Whether it's ourselves, our partners, our kids, or our parents, we're the ones making the choices and spending the, the time effectuating them. Whether we're driving someone to a doctor's appointment or going to get a prescription filled or on the phone with an insurance company or whatever it is we're doing, we're the ones putting in that time. And that's why married managers of, who are moms are at a much lower rate than married managers who are men and so forth, and also if you look at our LGBTQ friends, how many of them grew up using pronouns at work rather than the specific pronoun of the person that they were with? They say they, oh, them and they. There are women we know. Our colleague, uh, Samantha, who was here earlier, we always talk about this. Alicia, you know, at a younger age, didn't even put pictures of her daughter up at work because didn't want to invite the question of, oh, oh, you're, you're a mom of a young child, obviously you can't care about this case, obviously you can't care about this client, you won't have the time. So I think now there are a lot of groundbreakers who are reinventing what it means to be a leader and saying leadership starts in the home and it starts with being a very hands-on parent and a very intentional parent and if you can take care of your house and take care of your family, certainly you can defend and fight for a quality of life for other families in the community.
1: And that—that's a great tie into my next question because there's another line you wrote in the book that stuck with me, um, that quote: "You don't want to be pigeonholed as." running as a woman. Instead, remind people that you are the best leader for the job. So there are skills that, I guess in many studies, women are known for being collaborative, right, and uh, being inclusive, and those are great management skills, and then there's a fine line of, you know, people thinking, oh, that, you know, calling it something else. How does your mom balance that? You know, obviously motherhood is a very good skill set to have and collaborative skills, but then it sounds like, yes, I don't want she doesn't want people to think of her as a woman, uh, but as the best leader of the job. So in terms of leadership and, and management skills for us, how do we balance that fine line of a woman running as the leader, running as a leader uh, who will do the best job?
2: Well, first of all, you have to be yourself, your own authentic self. Actually, one of the stories I told at Ignite, we, my mom and I were on stage together at um, Ignite, uh, in Washington, D.C. is was started by my friend Ann Moses at Mills College in Oakland. Uh, but they were in D.C. and we were on stage. And I, I told her this story. I said, well, I've been meaning to ask you this for a while. The first night that uh, you were elected whip, the very first time, one of the old bulls came up to me and he said, she's going to be a great leader. She could be speaker. She just has to look out for old bulls and jealous women. So the question I asked my mom was, How can we be better sisters to each other and also look out for the old bulls, some of whom are young bulls? And she said, well, we have to be ourselves and that there one of the things that she tried very intentionally to do was always bring other women with her. Because when there's one of you, you're alone. When there's two of you, they pitch you against each other. When there's three of you, you start to have critical mass. Taking an issue uh, near and dear to my heart, the issue of um, sexual violence in the military. It wasn't until you had a critical mass of women, Democrats and Republicans, in the House and the Senate that you went from having perhaps one question about military sexual assault and trauma to having an entire hearing in the House, an entire hearing in the Senate. Um, If you look at a number of the studies that I put in the books, whether it's Forbes or McKinsey and others, you make more equitable decisions when you have a critical mass of diversity and that includes of course diversity of gender. Um, this summer when we were, um, we said enough, we're, we're standing up for some young women who had been sexually harassed by someone who was a candidate for a retiree uh, investment position. We pointed out a study that CalPERS itself had done that said that it's better for the bottom line and for equity that you have 30% diversity. And so our argument was, Hey, CalPERS, y'all just put out this study that said that you get a better return on your buck if you have 30% um, women or people of color leading an organization. So if you elect someone to make decisions for you who has a history of harassing women and says it's not a big deal, um, maybe that person isn't going to invest in companies that are run by women CEOs. So it's bad for your bottom line to elect a harasser to your board. And um, thanks to the courageous um, testimony of the women and I would like to say the, the increasingly enlightened uh, voters, um, a different candidate won for that job. So I think the key is to, number one, have company. You want more people. You want to have company. A lot of times women are told to be like crabs in a barrel. You know, there can only be one reaching the top and the others try to pull uh, the first one down. You can't do that. You have to, you have to rise together. And, the more women succeed, the more women succeed. You need to have more um, people because you need to have that diversity of opinion. Also, I'll just tell this story. When I was packing my mom's go bag, see when you're um, part of what could be the continuity of government, that is say the Speaker of the House, the uh, majority or minority leader, and the majority or minority whip, um, if something is to happen, if there's a a Cambio attack, if there's some sort of a, if there's a war, if there's an attack, um, you're taken away into a bunker and to some safe, secure places. And there could be, you know, a different outfit that you have to put on. So there's a, there's a go bag that you pack. So I packed some pictures, um, and I packed her some clothes. And as I was trying to, you know, figure out, like, I packed her some socks with American flags and some other things. And I was thinking, you know, I, I was talking to her about it. And I said, well, I packed your go bag. And she said, um... You know, I'm the only everything, I'm the only woman at that table. It means I'm the only LGBTQ person, I'm the only Native American person, I'm the only African American person, I'm the only Latina, I'm the only everything that is different than the straight white man. So when you look at it, when you at least to President Obama, you had, okay, an African American male, but other than that, everybody else, and now look at that, look at all those White House meetings, every single person, and then you've got Nancy, and Nancy has to be the other, other everything. That's the pressure of being the only one. And I bet there's a lot of people in this room. Just show of hands. How many people here in the past year were the only woman or the only woman of color at a table? Ooh, that's a lot of hands, that's beautiful. right? And we're in liberal California. So think about that. We need company. Your success is somebody else's success, and it also takes the pressure off you, um, and it allows you to be more. So I think that, that, and it's always important for me to say this as the chair of the Women's Caucus, we elect female and feminist candidates because there are women who are not feminists. And we want women and men and people of all genders to be feminists. That's our goal, is equality without apology and that means respecting our others choices and that means being secure so secure in ourselves that not only we speaking up but we're bringing other people to the table with us knowing that diversity is strength and as my mom always says our diversity is our strength our unity is our power
1: I wanted to ask you about a seat at the table. That was a great chapter of many. Uh, There were some really good examples of how your mom took a seat at the table all the way through her career. I liked the uh, example of uh, deciding whether to join the Library Commission or be a volunteer, Uh, the dinners with colleagues in her early Congress years, and how those dinners could have been and how she steered them. the big a big one in 2008 when there was a the stock market crash and the financial bailout the seat of the table with that one and uh, one of the many memes and photos that, of your mom uh, in the past couple of years, her standing up at that table in the, in the White House with a bunch of white, uh, older men and standing up and pointing a finger at Trump. So there's a lot of great examples of your mom at the table. And I was just wondering if you could use a, a couple, uh, one or two of those examples or another one that shows how she took it to see the table and you know she claimed it and, and um, you know, ruled the table. Again, the point is that women belong;
2: that everybody, leaders belong, and no one is going to give you power. You have to you have to sit and take it. If you're elected, um, or if you have earned your stripes through your volunteer work, then take that seat at the table. When um, my mom was in high school, she was part of the Model United Nations and the United Nations Friendship Society of Baltimore, and um, there was a larger society, not just the high school chapter, um, that was having a big dinner in Maryland. And my father, grandfather was the mayor of Baltimore at the time. And he and my grandmother were supposed to go and they were going to bring my mom and she was going to sit with the high school students. Then my grandmother got sick. So it was an opportunity for my mom to sit with her father, um, and the guest speaker. And so, uh, she had a choice, right? She could sit with a, at the kid's table where she had a seat and where she was a member of the club and had paid her dues, or she could sit next to the guest speaker. So she said, well, you know, my mother wouldn't want Senator Kennedy to sit alone, so I better take that seat at that table. And there was a woman who said, well, before you sit, you should get your picture taken with him. He could be president of the United States. Now, that's the picture that has ricocheted through history because just about everybody there thought that Senator John F. Kennedy could be president of the United States. But no one could have imagined that Nancy Patricia D'Alessandro was going to be a member of Congress, much less the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives. So that foresight in taking, you know, getting, let's take that picture, let's sit there at the table, um, put her in a different place. When uh, she first got elected to Congress, there were uh, 12 Democratic women and there were 11 Republican women. Now, there are 15 Republican women and over 90 Democratic women. One party made a choice. Her party made a choice. She was part of making that choice. So they're in the early days, and she goes to Congress, and Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Boxer were sisters in service, both representing San Francisco. And at the table, they were there with Barbara Canelli, a congresswoman from New York, who's actually the first woman um, in leadership as the head of the House Democratic Caucus. So they're there, but... This is before Barbara Canelli was in leadership, and they're at the table, and these guys are talking, and they talk about everything. And week in, week out, they never ask the women what they thought, ever. So one night they were talking about um, families, and the topic turned to childbirth. And the women thought, surely. <laughs> it's our moment. We've got nine kids between us. Surely they'll ask us what we think. No, not even then. They're like, you can't even talk about, you're not even asked about childbirth. Uh, you know, guy's are like, oh, my God, it was unbelievable. Oh, my God, I had to go, oh, my God, it was I almost fainted. You know, and they're like, really? Really, you guys? Like, this is like, you know, a Seinfeld uh, or a Larry David episode. Like, what are you talking about? So they were like, we've got to make a difference. We've got to bring more women to the table. We've got to bring more diversity to the table because this is absolutely absurd. And they made a decision to do that. Now, the Watergate babies who were elected in 1974, they won the House and sent it back. Not a single one of those freshmen got a gavel, not a single one. In fact, the things were still old school that when my mom got there 13 years later, she, other, she had a ceremonial swearing in with the Speaker of the House and never had another meeting. Uh, in fact, the first time she had a meeting in the office of the Democratic Speaker of the House when, was when she was the Democratic Speaker of the House. She meets every week. She has a freshman meeting every week. She has a sophomores meeting every week. She has a what she calls a crescendo meeting every week with the constituency caucus leadership that comes in. She's constantly bringing people in. And this, this time, 18 freshmen have gavels, 10 women and eight men. That's intentional leadership of saying, come to the table, bring other people, not only give them a seat at the table, a seat at the head of the table because, That's where the decisions are made. So when you look at somebody, all that's been done to attack Native and sacred lands, to think that Deborah Holland, one of the first two Native American women ever elected to Congress, along with Sharice Davids of Kansas, both elected at the same time, but to think that Deb Holland, who's a Native American woman, is the chair of the public lands subcommittee, of the interior committee, as a freshman, as a Native American woman, to, to go see her convene those meetings is so powerful and it says so much about representation. So the key is go to the table, take your seat, don't say, oh, I'm a volunteer, that's okay, I don't need the credit. Take the credit, take the credential, sit there, you belong, and not only do you belong, but other people belong there with you, and if you need company, go out and recruit it because the guys, we love them. They're wonderful, I'm married to a white man, they're wonderful human beings. But they can't have everything. And the wiser ones know that and will make room. And I think it's really important. When we first did We Said Enough, we were talking to the women out there. Weren't we, Alicia? We were talking to the women out there. But we noticed a shift about six months in. And we realized the women already knew what we were doing. We had to talk to the men. Because we had to teach them how to be partners. A lot of people make note of saying, They could be allies. Well, an ally is a temporary relationship. I don't need an ally, I need an accomplice. I need a partner. And so I think that one of the things that's really important is you can't run as a woman. If you run as a woman, there are majority men. It's a majority of men who elected her leader and speaker all of those times. So she couldn't have said, I'm running as a woman because that would not have been enough to get her votes. In fact, that's how they tried to co-opt her. First they said, who said she could run? Really, that's what they said. Then they said, they went to her and said, well, why don't you give a list of what the women want and we'll get it done for you. (laughs) Poor babies. But think how many, she wasn't the first person. That wasn't an original thought. She was just the first person that defied them and ran anyway, right? They had done that co-option for a long time. So I think that for men, it's important to be partners and not just temporary allies, but really be in there as a partner And, and for women, and, and and for people who are, are gender non-binary, it's important to say, I'm here claiming my seat at the table. I might be something new. I might be something you've never experienced before, which is a person in authority who's not like you. But I am you because we share the same values. We same share the same uh, commitment to public service. And we're constituents of each other. And that should be enough.
1: Another chapter in the book that I found very valuable was uh about building strategic alliances, which obviously is very important in Congress if you want to get things done. But I think it's very important in general for all of us, uh, um, no matter what job or career we're in. Um, there were so many examples in there. I don't have any specific examples. I was wondering if you could kind of boil down that chapter about building strategic alliances, um, what, what your mom, you know, what skills she learned that were very useful and that would be useful for us. Well, again, having a strategic
2: alliance is, you know, it, it, it's deeper than something that's temporary. It's really saying, where can we really bond on an issue where we're not being partisan or political? I'll give an example. Friday, February 14th, is the anniversary of the Parkland massacre. And there are some parents who are very outspoken, including our dear friend Fred Gutenberg, who you might remember got kicked out of the State of Union. They were yelling, USA. They were screaming four more years. They all got to stay. He said, what about my daughter who was murdered by guns? And he got kicked out. They tried to arrest him, but the speaker went down and stopped them from doing that. Um, Fred's very outspoken. But there's some other Parkland parents and other parents who um, have, their children have been killed in uh, gun massacres, and they don't want to be political. They'll say, I'm not political. They want to help. They want to contribute their intellectual capacity and say, uh, for example, we want to be fighters for health care because if you've lost a child, you have a permanent pre-existing condition of, of PTSD. You never get over losing a child to violence ever, regardless of the cause, but particularly not uh, to gun violence. Or if you're a patient recovering from a traumatic injury, you also are a healthcare patient. So they might want to do that. There are some who are very artistic and lend their artistic sensibilities to the movement, but they don't want to be political. And yet there was someone who just today had sent a message through so I texted her and said hey mom call so-and-so you know his anniversary is Friday and he's doing this artistic thing and um, you know he wants to talk to you now he's someone I would never say his name publicly because he doesn't want to be political and if Pelosi said his name he'd get all sorts of you know kind of like some of the replies you got on social media when people found out I was coming Uh, so it's a different thing they don't want to be partisan they don't want to be political they want to be artistic or they want to be organic and We have to accept that that's where people want to make their public service offering and take it there. And another example I use is the veterans. Um, I, as you mentioned, co-founded the DNC Veterans and Military Families Council. Um, At the time, my cousin was active duty um, Gulf War, which I had protested, by the way, and got arrested protesting, which is another story. Um, But the point is we needed to give people a home in the Democratic Party, I thought, institutionally, and separate the war from the warrior and support the warrior even though we oppose the war. And uh, one of the things that ever since she became uh, in leadership that my mom has done is had uh, meetings with the veteran service organizations. Now they're bipartisan, they're nonpartisan, they're mostly Republicans, and then there's independents, and then there's um, Democrats. So these are not her voters. This is not her party's base. Actually, they're her voters in San Francisco because there's actually a lot of veterans uh, and, and more veterans per capita in Northern California than anywhere else, as some of our veterans know. But The fact of the matter is these are strategic alliances that are really important. That's where they came up with two-year budgeting for the VA. That's where they come up with a number of um, the actual original veterans' choice that Obama signed into law that someone else keeps taking credit for um, but that was put together. But that's an example of where if you're just trying to build support around your political party or around your gender or around your community, you're missing out on the other people who are out there. And sometimes they don't want to be out there publicly with you unless they can also be with your opponent at the same time, like it has to be bipartisan, take yes for an answer. Take their service for an answer. Accept what they have to offer because there's a lot of really beautiful work that people want to do and they want to be able to do that on their own terms. And so building those strategic alliances is really important. I'm out there a lot farther than most people are ever going to go uh, and keep their jobs. So. I understand that gives me a responsibility to speak for them. It also and with them, it also gives me a responsibility to try to reach people um, um, crossing a political divide and and that's the kind of strategic alliance building partnership building that I learned from my mom.
1: I like to invite people uh, with questions to line up at the mic, and while you're doing that, uh, one question I have. I think that's uh It seems like uh, your mom has gotten attention and criticism from the beginning of her career, uh, reading um, how she, when she was first running for office, getting a deathbed endorsement. Um, And then it was interesting, your comments where you overheard people talking about your mom in the coffee shop at a young age. It just seems like, wow, even back then, criticism was something that uh, she needed to get a really thick skin for and her family members as well. In general, I think you know, a lot of us probably, handling criticism is a tough thing. Your mom is Speaker of the House. So much criticism uh, along the way. How does she handle it? Uh, for someone, especially in the public eye, how does she handle criticism? Um, how do you handle criticism, I guess? You know. Do you feel like, you have to, do you have to defend your mom? Um, you know, when you get criticism, how do you handle it based on what you've learned from your mom? And just, you know, how can we, when we're kind of out there and all these arrows are coming in from all directions, how can we keep our cool and and carry on? Well, part of it is knowing yourself. You know, one thing my mom has always said that
2: criticism and effectiveness go hand in hand. If you don't matter, they're not going to criticize you. And if you do, they will. And that, you know, you see that dynamic playing out very, very early on at a very young age, right? If people, someone is good at something, other people are going to try to know kind of needle them or criticize them and we live in a very uh, hypercritical world social media makes it seem so much worse when you think of all the cyber bullying that's going on um, when you think of a lot of the uh, criticisms that are not just something that are spoken in word but something that can last forever on a social media posting you know it's quite toxic and couple of things, one is knowing yourself, know know your purpose, know your why, know why you get out there and put yourself out there, really being confident in yourself and not limiting who you are to how somebody else defines you. Whether it's how society defines you, if, you know, she had lived Baltimore's dreams for her, my mom never would have left Albemarle Street. Her mother didn't. In fact, when she was applying to college and she wanted to make this big leap and go to Washington, D.C., where my grandfather was in Congress, so had been in Congress, so it wasn't like it was the ends of the earth, it was an hour away. And he said, well, she's going to go there to Trinity over my dead body. And her mother said, well, Tommy, that could be arranged. So, (laughs) so he, so her mom was really pushing for her, you know, to get out there. Um, When she first ran for for office, she found all these people were saying, oh, yeah, you should run, you should run. Then she starts running and they start criticizing her. Like that's just part of what happens. By the time she ran for Congress, and people said all sorts of terrible things, including other candidates for the same job who had been in our home. They had gotten that zip-sorted newsletter, and I served them canapes, and now they're suddenly saying, my mom didn't know the issues? Like, what are you talking about? But she would say, in all honesty, if they can't take my children from me, they can't hurt me. And now, when she works with parents like, like Fred, we talked about, like that, you know, like the people whose, whose children have been taken away from them through gun violence or for, through disease or through war. Um, she has a responsibility to them. She can't say, well, he mean tweeted about me today, so I'm not going to go pick up the fight. Or he said a bunch of lies, so I'm not going to respond to the lies. Um, she's really, really, really tough. I don't think I know anybody tougher and... I don't know how to do that, and I always say to her, "How in the world can you say to these people like, you go out and raise a fortune for the Democratic Party, and these people are like criticizing you constantly?" And you say to them, "Just win, baby." And she's like, "I have a plan. It doesn't matter. We have a higher purpose." And my daughter Bella, um, who's um, who's an actress and uh, who's um, ten, almost eleven, you know, she, she's very sensitive to criticism, as as you know, young actresses are and uh, young kids can be, and she'll say, my mom will say to her, Bella, don't listen to them. Don't worry about them. Worry about yourself. Be yourself. You just go out there and you do your best. You're going to be great, and you can't let that bother you. If you let somebody else tell you that you're bad at something, and then therefore it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, then you're not really honoring your purpose. If you love something and you really want to do it, and step into it and also understand something and I alluded to this earlier, you have first name friends and last name friends when you're in public life. There are people who are your first name friends, they'll love you no matter what and it's really important to hold on to those friends and not become a different person around those friends, right? And then they're your last name friends. And those would be, you know, maybe some strategic allies. And it's fine to have both sets, but you have to know who's who. And, you know, in order to do that, you have to be a good friend. My mom and dad have been friends with their college roommates since college. They still get together a couple times a year, this whole group of them. And she gets together with her college roommates who live in the D.C. area quite often, including, I think, uh, as almost as we speak. So they they have been friends with their friends for a long time. They've been the same people the entire time. So being yourself, being real and trusting yourself enough to fail and keep going, um, not being defined by society's dreams for you or other people's. A lot of times when people criticize you, there's two reasons. One is they're giving you the same criticisms that they got and they succumb to. So they're not necessarily being mean sometimes. Sometimes they're just testing you to see if you can overcome something that they couldn't overcome. Sometimes they're just being mean and you can't respond to that and internalize that because you have a higher purpose. And so a lot of it just comes down to how badly you want what you want and if you're willing to fight for it
3: and keep your soul. All right, how about our first question to the mic? Okay. Uh, Thank you so much for having this event and Christine for being here. Uh, You talked about... Criticism, but I wanted to ask about fear. Uh, you know, we're living in a culture of fear on so many levels that's being instilled upon us, in us, around us. And um, I've dealt with my own fear and realized that, you know, whatever happens, I'm solid in what I'm doing, and so I'll take whatever comes. How, how are you affected by, or is that an, uh, an aspect of your life you think about, deal with, and as well as your mother and your, your family? Because you're in the limelight. You're, you know, everybody knows your mother all around the world. Is there fear? Well, I think,
2: I sometimes wonder what it would be like to be the daughter of a male speaker of the house or the son of a male speaker of the house. There's always anger. There's always threats. There's always ugliness. But for have it to have it not be gendered violence, I wonder what that would be like. Uh, my daughter right now, Bella, is... Um, Black history month, so they got to pick somebody to write about, and she wanted to write about Michelle Obama. And you think about what the Obamas went through as the first African-American first family of the country, and what Michelle Obama, which she talks about in Becoming, her book, which we're, we're reading to Bella and with Bella at night, um, what she talks about having to go through the fear that you constantly have because some of these death threats are very real, and that's a fact, and you have to deal with them. Um, and yet at the same time, not wanting that fear to take over, your ability to be open, your ability to be loving, your ability to be yourself and be a groundbreaker for other people looking at you saying, well, how can I go forward? Um, And so I look at it and think of, we can't be trapped in the fear. We have to be smart about it. You know, there's certain risks we take when I'm with Bella. I don't post where we are on social media until after we've left, unless we're somewhere with security. I'm very careful about um, certain things that I do in order to, uh, you know, protect her. I feel more of a responsibility to Bella than I do for myself simply because, um, you know, I was a prosecutor of sexual violence and sexual assault. The very first time I blogged ever, February 11th, 2006, the very first time I ever blogged, someone came on and did a comment, and it was someone I had prosecuted. It was a child assaulter. I had prosecuted years before, years before, like nine years before. So all I'm saying is it, at that point, I could have just been silent or I could have stepped forward and I stepped forward and I keep doing it. So I think the answer is you have to live your truth and you can't let fear stop you from living your truth and know that other people are watching you and watching you respond with strength, and uh, be really, really appreciative of those people who put their lives on the line uh, to protect you—that's uh, the way you know. To me, it's—we're always afraid. It's how you manage your fear that—that—that that, that is a is a lesson you can be imparting to other people. And you don't want your fear to make you close off from other people, foreclose having uh, engagements with other people, and so being yourself, being open, being real, uh, despite in some cases a well-founded fear, is I think what being a public servant in this era
3: is all about. That definitely answers my question, but while I'm here, I wanted to present you one of the people I know who actually gives a crap. This is a roll of toilet paper. (laughs) It is by a company that called Who Gives a Crap? and they're out of uh, Australia, they're in the UK, and they're now in the United States. It's a subscription service, recycled paper, but the beauty of this company is they give half of their profits to building toilets all over the world where they are needed. So um, you give a huge crap and we give a (laughs) crap for you. (laughs)
1: How how does that rank as the most interesting <laughs> gift you've gotten? Well, we're you know, actually, p- <laughs> we're taking photo ops here.
2: Actually, Bella did take a, a roll of toilet paper and, and took the toilet paper off, and then she put it back on. And she made a little uh, statue of me. So this will go right next to that in a place of honor in my home.
1: Thank you for the great question and the and the gift. <laughs> it'll be and I'm sure it'll be used. All right. Well, while we have other people uh, lining up with the mic with great questions, I, I did have one about uh, Me Too and We Said Enough, which you're a co-founder of the movement here in, in California. In the book you wrote that when those advocacy mo- movements reach Congress, your mother convened Congress women and stakeholders s- to support a change of the capital culture. Um, What were the results of that convening? And in general, how does your mother as speaker try to address and make change to the capital culture? Well, it was interesting because we spoke out here
2: first, Adama Iwu, our fearless leader, uh, spoke out here first and uh, spearheaded a letter that a number of us uh, signed, some people, like Alicia, took big risks in signing that letter. Other people, like me, it was not as much a risk for me because I was chair of the Women's Caucus, and I had been calling out members of the Democratic Party for their sexism for years. So I already knew the risk that I was taking, but I had already taken those risks before. Other people were stepping into an unknown, and we all felt a great responsibility to each other. Then we couldn't even get the letter signed, so this was sort of interesting. We couldn't even get the letter published. Because the LA Times said, well, um, we said, well, it's supposed to come out Monday, and it's not out. And they said, oh, well, we're going through. It's a letter to the editor, so we have to verify every name. And I said, well, I'm the fourth name, and you haven't called me, and it's been three hours. So, you know, and I said, you know, it's interesting because um, I found two other news outlets who are willing to publish the letter if you're not. And by the way, my mom's talking to your politics editor tomorrow night in Los Angeles at an event on current happenings in California politics. So it'd be kind of interesting if one of the happenings was her daughter co-signed a letter of sexual harassment and you wouldn't publish it. So we gave them that to think about. (laughs) It's just a potential topic of conversation. And um, so then they came back and said, well, if you turn it into an open letter and put it on a website, we can write an article about that. So Alicia Lewis very quickly um, said, oh, problem solved, and so got that done. So it was the We Said Enough website that actually was the subject of the of the article, but we put it out there. But even again, even speaking out, they didn't want us to do that, and we're trying to stop us, and we were like, okay, let's get creative. So from the start, we knew that we were leveraging our power, and we were asking other people to leverage their power. Um, one thing that was interesting was that So we started with Me Too politics. Then there was another letter that came out, and it was the Me Too Congress letter. And I'm actually the only person in the country that signed both, because I've been a chief of staff on Capitol Hill. So when we go into the then leader Pelosi's office, and she has a convening of senior staff, some congresswomen like Jackie Speer, our great leader from California, like um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, a congresswoman uh, from Washington DC, who had been the head of the EEOC under Jimmy Carter. Um, Annie Custer, Congresswoman from New Hampshire, who has told her story of being um, assaulted when she was uh, by a guest when she was a page in the Senate. And there were no rules for guests. So she was there along with some people from business, along with some people who were attorneys who had tried to um, represent people suing members of Congress and, and, and staff. And so when it was my turn to speak, I said, I just want to say, 15 years ago, I was the chief of staff on Capitol Hill, and I went to this attorney over here, and she told me what it would be like Because I went on behalf of someone who wanted to sue, and she told me what it would be like that the member of Congress was going to have all the protection and that she would have to pay for her own legal fees, and she wouldn't be able to talk to anybody other than her legal team. Meanwhile, the member of Congress could talk to anyone they wanted about what was going on that it would be a secret settlement that no one would find out about but everyone would know that she had filed the complaint and she would be unhirable and the fact that it's 15 years later and we're having this same conversation with the same lawyer should tell us that we need to make change so that was my testimony as it were and um, and so that it was interesting and I write about it in the book that, that you had a member of Congress who it took five days to convince to step aside after Um, his allegations came out, which seemed like an eternity. It seemed like an eternity because it was happening over Thanksgiving weekend. That's the other thing about being in politics. There isn't a Thanksgiving or an Easter where there isn't also some other congressional crisis going on. So we're like, oh wait, what happened to carving the turkey? Oh no, wait, we're doing this leadership meeting instead on the phone, there's a conference call. So much for the turkey, I guess dad's carving it. Um, These are the sacrifices, but the point is, we were really clear that there had to be a change and that there was a lot of, there were a lot of people coming forward who said i want to draw a line over the past i want to do things differently i don't want to be sexually harassed on the job the other thing that was i found interesting and something that they took into electing more diverse members of congress was when we said enough, we said enough to sexual harassment and, and, and abuse. Remember, Alicia? And then it was the African American Staff Association that said, no, for us it's discrimination, it's racial discrimination. And it was the LGBTQ community that said, no, for us it's bullying. So we went from complaining about harassment and abuse to complaining about harassment, discrimination, bullying, and abuse. So it's always those four. Um, and, and that was the sensibility that we took to Congress. And so there was a wave of, um, of, of reforms that went through and now people are really, really clear. You cannot abuse the staff. You can't harass the staff. And when you do, the staff has a lot more protections and the leadership is absolutely not going to stand for it. So I think that that, has, has that and the fact that you have more women and more people of color and more LGBTQ people elected to Congress is slowly changing the culture. It doesn't change overnight. There are a lot of dinosaurs that are still there. They're entrenched. But what does also change is that it is not the norm. Now they're the ones that have to talk about it in the whisper network and we can talk about equity out loud.
1: Next question, to the mic, please. Hi,
4: I'm Melanie Herman, and uh, from Sacramento. This is a question about strategic alliances. So, my husband is not a liberal like I am, and he has said that there are three people he can't vote for: President Trump, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. And he's read their books, and. Uh, as for, and there are other Republicans who also won't vote for Trump, but that are not necessarily pro-choice. And so there's, um, and Klobuchar is surging in the polls, and given that, uh, what do you think about Klobacher?
1: Klo- Klobuchar? Amish in- Klo- Klobuchar, Klobuchar is...
2: Yeah, she she's won a lot of races in Minnesota, and um, and had to pull diverse coalitions together to do it. Remember, Minnesota is not as progressive as the uh, all clean slate, all as I call it, clean slate, Democratic slate of statewide elected officials. It's a it's a it's a it's a swing state that is a Democratic state because they work at it really 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 hard. Um, so I think that she is, uh, she is a strong candidate. I will say this as a former prosecutor myself, I think that there's been a lot of changes over the last several years about how we look at criminal justice reform and transformation, how we look at back at the failed war on drugs and some of the choices that were made in prosecutions and what we would do now. I felt frankly for the movement itself in 2015 and I, I felt both, um, Democratic candidates for president in 2016. For this, they relitigated the crime bill rather than taking up the Colson um, Bipartisan Task Force uh, prison reforms started by Chuck Colson who was one of the Watergate defendants who then started prison ministries and then had a bipartisan, interracial, national coalition that put together these um, reforms that were building on President Obama's signing the Fair Sentencing Act in 2010. So I thought we had a real opportunity to move forward and instead people were relitigating a crime bill from 20 years before. Right, that one of them had voted for, and the other's husband had written. So it was like, why are we? Why aren't we living in the future? I think Amy Klobuchar is having her prosecution moment now, where they're saying, well, there was some cases that you tried as a prosecutor, or that you were the head of the office, and people in your unit tried that. Um, you know, that targeted uh, you know young black men, and now that there's new evidence that's come forward, don't you see? the new evidence showed that even the original evidence was faulty. So I think she's having an accountability moment for that. And I hope that she does so with integrity and does so in a way that, that leads us to believe that she could carry the party standard going forward. Um, I know she's voted right you know, what I consider right in a more enlightened way for several years. So I think that's good. I think that she brings a lot to the table and she's, uh, she's very, very smart. She came and talked to the women's caucus, talked to us about women's equity and, um, and what it meant to her to be pro-choice. And, um, I'll say one story I really like about her is that she, um, in Minnesota, she gave birth and it was drive by. You're in, you're out, you give birth to the baby and then you're out of there. You know within hours of giving birth um, she had to leave and so she fought for the right for um, women to get to stay mandatory at least 48 hours after giving birth in the hospital and it made her uh, you know a champion for other women um, uh, as far as maternity leave was concerned and so I think uh, I think that there's a lot there but like I said right now in this moment with Bernie as the frontrunner in the raw vote and Pete Buzic as the frontrunner in the um, Electoral college vote is the moment we're in right this second. I think that it's a sign of the sexism that remains in the Democratic Party, that if you wanted a Midwestern moderate, you would have picked Amy a long time ago. Pete's got a very compelling story, but if what you wanted was a Midwestern moderate, Amy was right there. And I also think that when you look at Elizabeth having slipped, I think she slipped for two reasons. One, she was a woman with a plan, but she had to change her plan when it came to health care. And second, when her supporters talked about Bernie Sanders being sexist, I think she really lost a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters and a lot of goodwill there. Again, it seemed like she was running as a woman and not um, as herself and it was a very messy conversation and they treated her brutally for that. And I'll to be very honest, there are a lot of people who said to me in 2016, I don't think the party should be led by a woman after Hillary lost. Well, who were they talking about other than my mom, right? Let's get real. Right? So, I believe there's a difference between what is, seen, what is said and what is heard. So, yeah, I believe, you know, Bernie could have said, yeah, I don't know that a woman, you know, Trump would weaponize, you know, gender against a woman. And she's like, I'm right here. But he may not have meant it as an insult to her. So, what he said and what she received appear to be two different things. But her talking about it and her supporters talking about it lost her a lot of votes. And it broke up that coalition in a major way, and so it's kind of ironic that that is what created the space for Amy to go through. And I'm sorry that we're still living in this moment where there still seems to be only room for one woman. There's room for many moderates, and perhaps a couple liberals, but there's only room for one woman as a finalist. So you know, if it's Amy, that'd be great. As far as I'm concerned, there has to be a woman on the ticket. There has to be diversity on the ticket, one or two. So we'll see what happens.
1: Thank you. This question came to mind, actually, when you were talking about that. We have some uh, uh, great female heads of states around the world. Angela Merkel from uh, Germany and Jacinda Ardern, I believe that's her name, from New Zealand, who's uh, uh, fairly new. And then I think Finland uh, elected uh, a president. Greece also did as well. I guess my thought is, you know, it just seems like the rest of the world has, doesn't have much of a problem having a woman in charge um, as head of state and we still do your mom is is as close you know as we have right now and there's still that uh, pushback but I guess my question is like what's your take on how we perceive women in office and how that compares and contrast to maybe other countries um, out there that perceive women um, as heads of state or you know taking charge does that make sense?
2: Well, we are very slow here in America. We're still at 20% when it comes to corporate leadership. We're also, we think, oh, well, let's take a look over at uh, nonprofits, right? That's where women who don't want to run for public service, they say, I want to be in public service, but I don't want to run. I'll go in a nonprofit. Still at 20% when you look at the big companies. It's, it's a big deal. We switched uh, butter in my house because we used to get Challenge Butter. Now we have Land O'Lakes. Why? Because they have a woman CEO. So I was like, yeah, let's support the sister, Okay. <laughs> So it's good butter too, but it's it's especially good butter because uh, the company's run by a woman. So I try to track those things and support, you know, the sisterhood wherever I can. I think that we we have a great great uh, you know farm team of women. We are going to have a woman president uh, before long. It's just it's taking longer than we thought because of what happened in 2016. Um, but I do think that America is ready. I also think that again it goes back to where we were in 2008. Where we were in 2008 in the primary in the spring when we looked headed towards a competitive convention and the two finalists were an African-American man and a white woman. And we were going through what we would now call the swing states, but remember Barack Obama's strategy then was to have a ring of fire around Illinois. So he won to ring, you know, win Illinois, of course, but win. Iowa, Indiana, Michigan, all the states around him in the Midwestern strategy. So we were going through those Midwestern states and um, trying to preserve our then new Democratic majority. We talked to a lot of people who had never had a black drill sergeant, a female loan officer, a uh, African-American manager they had just never personally had that experience so we had sort of a labor-to-neighbor program using a lot of the retirees Um, um, I was doing work with AFSCME but it was other unions who were doing it too with working in America and the AFL and the steelworkers where we were basically having pairing up a retiree with a current member to go out and say, no, we have a shop steward now. They're you know, We have black shop steward now. It's okay. You know, we have women, you know, on the pack board of the union now. Like we're doing new things now because we had to condition people who had never, ever, ever had the authority really outside their home and outside teaching or nursing, the more traditional, well, they were traditionally male professions until women started doing them and then we stopped getting paid as much, but that's another lecture. Uh, but The point is, they had never seen that kind of leadership before in a corporate model or a military model, and suddenly we were asking them to say, make this person the CEO of the country and the commander-in-chief of the military. And um, it was very hard when we look at um, the military voters vis-a-vis Hillary. It was very hard for them, many of them, so they told us to see her as a commander-in-chief. She was a hawk, for God's sake, and they still didn't see her as being Commander-in-Chief material. So I think that that's why we keep having to bring up other women through the ranks. The more women generals you have, you know, the more easy it will be to have more women Commanders-in-Chief. The more women who are running companies and who are governors and senators and members of Congress, and uh, then the more opportunity you have to see um, women in leadership and ultimately elect a woman president. So I think um, it's important for us to support Rising people up through the ranks so that um, in business, in entertainment, in nonprofits, in politics, so that we're used to seeing that kind of authority, and then it becomes something that we're willing to promote because you're not going from out of nowhere to the leader of the free world. You're going from the leader of a major company, a senior senator, a committee chairwoman, a party leader to being
1: president of the United States. All right, doing a time check. I think we have time for one last question for the audience.
4: OK Hello. My name is Liz, and thank you for being here tonight. Um, since 2016, every day, it's been how important 2020 elections is going to be. Well, here we are. So I don't think it was ever more important to me than after your mom's uh, speech after the prayer breakfast. After I heard her, I'm driving in my car and I thought to myself, okay, it is time to engage. So you have a unique perspective being the leader of the DNC Women's Caucus. What advice do you have for those of us young and old who are now saying it's time for us to get engaged it's time for us to become active where will we make the most impact
1: i just want to you stole my last question there (laughs) and also if you can just give some um for those of us who don't aren't aware or familiar with the speech that uh that nancy gave at the prayer breakfast can you elaborate when this was and i guess a little background either either one
4: You you mean, I'm talking about the one that she gave after the prayer breakfast.
1: After the prayer breakfast?
4: Yes, when she said, he cannot be reelected.
2: Well, so what happened at the prayer breakfast, you might remember, was this is a bipartisan event where people go and they read prayers and recite them and offer some sort of blessing to the nation. And so Tuesday night, was the State of the Union, which began with the president not shaking the outstretched hand of the Speaker of the House and ended up with her ripping a speech in half. And him, then the next day, uh, Mitt Romney, being the first senator in United States history to ever vote to impeach a member of his own party. And I have to tell you, I was in the Senate chamber two nights of impeachment, trial the the Wednesday and the Friday so I was there when Dershowitz made his comment that the president makes policy for the good of the country and if he's also doing it because it's good politics for him to get re-elected then that is also um, a, a solid rationale and use of his not an abuse of power and there was you're not allowed to talk in the Senate like some of you murmur, and st- you're not allowed to talk. You weren't even allowed to signal with your eyes any approval or disapproval on penalty of removal. So we all had to be super, 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 super quiet. But there was a murmur that went through the chamber above where the visitors were and down below where the senators were because everybody was like, well, that's not the rule. Like you, you, you can't do that. All of them know that. They'd be in jail as senators if they said I can do whatever I want as long as it's good politics for me for do that and I'm I'm running for re-election. Like, that's just not true. And then also, you saw Mitt Romney. He was standing in the back. His seat's in the back, but he was actually standing up against the wall. And um, when the question to Justice Roberts came from Lindsey Graham and uh, Rand Paul, and they said, well, what if Mitt Romney's son was on the board of a corrupt company and Barack Obama had no choice but to investigate him? That wouldn't be a abuse of power, would it? And Again, people were like, that's your hypothetical? This is how you deal with a potential swing vote? Jeez. Um, Adam Schiff had the class to say, well, I'm not going to presume that hypothetical of Mr. Romney or his family. But I take your point, what if there was a political opponent of Barack Obama suspected of corruption? Could he investigate? These would be the... So, it was tense in there. They were, they were despite the fact, they knew... They were giving him a pass, and they were giving him a pass that they wouldn't give to anybody else, including themselves or their own staff. So they knew what they were doing. Then they acquit him. The next day is the prayer breakfast. At the prayer breakfast, he walks in and he's mugging with holding up pictures of the holding up the newspaper, including the Washington Post. He canceled the subscription. So I don't know, he broke his own rule by holding up the paper that said he had been acquitted. And then Instead of giving, uh, the, the theme of it was, you know, to learn from your enemies, to forgive your enemies, to, to be, you know, tolerant of different views. And he said, I don't know if I can do that. After his introduction. And he gives this mean, nasty speech. He talks about, I don't like people who use their faith as a crutch. Because Mitt Romney had talked about his Mormon faith as being the reason that he couldn't vote to uh, acquit. He had to convict. And, um, Or people who say they pray for you when they really don't, which was an attack on my mom, who does constantly pray for the president and he gives her a lot to pray for. Um, (laughs) Because we need some help and we need to open, somehow we need some intervention here and some enlightenment. And then he proceeds to tell people they better vote for him. You better get out and vote for me. And then he talks about all this work that he's done for African-Americans and he leaves before the two African-Americans on the program actually got a chance to get up there, C.C. Winan, who sang a song, and John Lewis, who appeared via uh, video, to say a beautiful benediction. So after that um, was the Speaker's weekly press conference back at the Capitol, and they were asking for her commentary, and she essentially said, there's a lot that he's done to damage the Constitution. He is going after the social fabric and the safety net of the country. We can, we can repair that, we can, we can. the country is strong enough to withstand four years of Trump, but I don't know if we can withstand eight years and what that will do to a generation. So that was part of the commentary um, in those remarks. Uh, the election is March 3rd, so it's important to make sure that you vote and that you tell everybody else to vote. The voter registration deadline is Tuesday, so you know someone who's not registered, should tell them to register to vote so that they can vote um, March 3rd. Next month, uh, people are going to get in the mail their first uh, census questionnaire. Really, really, really important that they fill it out. So if you want to get involved with groups that are helping have a full count and a fair count of the census to make sure that all our communities are counted, That's a really important and critical thing to be doing right now so that we show the strength. We're not afraid of him. We're coming out of the shadows. We're being counted. And in terms of where you can make a difference, there are seven congressional seats that were were flipped in California. They all need your help and their support, including some not too far a drive from here, Josh Harder and TJ Cox, or you could go down further, uh, District 25, um, the Katie Hill seat, which is now uh, Christy Smith is now the party endorsed candidate or further south the four people who made orange uh, the new blue uh, In Orange County, Harley Ruda, Gil Cisneros, uh, Katie For- uh, Porter and Mike Levin They're all wonderful people who need support in terms of any political tourism after you finish with that We need help in Nevada winning Nevada swing state and also helping um, re-elect uh, Susie Lee who's uh, won the swing seat there um, or go over to Arizona, and help Gabby Giffords' husband, Gabby's husband, Mark Kelly, uh, run for Senate, um, help our congressional candidates there. And again, that's a swing seat on the presidential. So there's a lot of work to do right here in the beautiful Western states, whether it's the seven uh, districts in California, whether it's Nevada, whether it's Arizona. And I would say it's really critically important, and going back to the Amy Klobuchar question, uh, my Two personal favorite lines that she always says, of course a woman could beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every day, that's a great line. And the other one she says is, it's not gonna matter, all our plans aren't gonna matter if we can't win the Senate. So we have to win the Senate, that's really where the battle is. If you talk about, oh, this one could be in the cabinet, that one could be on the Supreme Court, that's all interesting, you need the Senate to do that. So I think it's really important to vote, make sure you're counted in the census, make sure you're part of that, and when when we get to, um, when we get to uh, whoever the nominee is and whatever that ticket looks like, make sure we can all get together. because whoever it is, we all have our enthusiasms, and we're all gonna, there' going to be things about this nominee you will not like. I promise you, you won't like them. There'll be things that you wouldn't might even be someone you wouldn't vote for in a primary. You wouldn't even vote for for senator, much less president. But guess what? You know the alternative. You know what is happening to the social fabric. You know what is happening to the American safety net. You know what is happening to the way that we deal with each other. You know what has happened to the Republican Party. And their inability to be a strong counterweight to the Democratic Party and to their own president and say, let's forge a future for all of us. So that's what we can do. Register to vote. Vote. Help, help us keep the California seats blue. Help us turn um, Arizona. Help us uh, in Nevada. And when we do, let's just make sure no matter what happens, the, m- the minute after the votes are counted, which may not be election night, have your stamina, have your patience for when those votes get counted, but just make sure that we have no regrets because we all stepped up, took a seat at the table, took a seat um, volunteering and doing what we could do.
1: Thank you for Thank the you. I think that's a, a good place to end it. Obviously, March 3rd is another day, so uh, uh, pay attention to Christine's advice. Thank you very much for coming and, and talking with us. Uh, and give our best to your mom. Uh, tell her to stay strong and hang in there. She's doing great so far. And we'll wrap it up and call it a night. Thank you, audience, for coming. And uh, have a great evening, everyone. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreakers Q&A conversation with Christine Pelosi was held on February 12th, 2020 at Antiquity Midtown in Sacramento. Thanks to Christine Pelosi for the great conversation. Thanks also to Antiquity Midtown owners Marcy Hose and Sharon Wilson for hosting this event. Special thanks goes to Heidi and Ross Rojek of Capital Books in Sacramento for providing the books for Christine to sign and the audience to purchase. And to our volunteers, Nate Graham, Nicole Grant Krieg, Rodrigo Ramirez, for their continued support and making another event run smoothly. To Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing the podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.